1: Father, we just pray that you would just reign in us. Lord, that's our cry and our prayer this morning. Father, is that we would also join with the crowds that would just proclaim, Hosanna as he who comes in the name of the Lord. Come and save us. And Father, we just thank you, Lord, that you have sent Jesus to do so. And we just submit to him this morning as we just sing in praises. Lord, as we lift up our prayers to you and as we hear your word, let us respond as your Holy Spirit does his work. Begin now this morning to encourage us, to enlighten us, and to challenge us to love one another. I pray that you just again, as we celebrate your presence, that you make yourself known in a mighty way. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Take your Bibles, if you would, as we continue in Mark chapter 11. As we continue to move on, we're now going to see we're moving from Jesus' journey to Jerusalem to the Jerusalem ministry as we enter into the final week Of Jesus' life here on earth. Today, our title is Jesus Enters Jerusalem. It's found in Mark 11. Let me ask you: Have you ever heard of the phrase "waiting for the other shoe to drop"? Have you ever heard that phrase? Never? Oh my goodness! Anyone else ever heard that phrase? Please, a few of you. All right, thank you. Now we're showing our age, is what we're doing. Is waiting for the other shoe to drop. Is looking for the hammer to drop. Is waiting for something else bad. to happen is what that phrase means. Imagine a scenario, if you will, where you have become the model employee at your place of work. You are punctual. You're considerate to your fellow employees. You're desiring to make them better. You are productive. You follow all the policies and procedures to a T. You have the mutual admiration from your coworkers and customers alike. However, your employer is not happy with you. All of your good work serves to display his own laziness, lack of true leadership, and his own selfishness. And Though they try to find ways to find fault with your work, they continually come up empty. Eventually, they try to turn your co-workers and customers against you by spreading lies and spouting threats. They do this openly with your knowledge and it has become apparent that they want to get rid of you at any cost. Is it hard for you to imagine this scenario? Maybe some of you are living it out. I don't know. They go so far as to ask your coworkers and customers to inform them of any misstep you may take in order to fire you. Knowing all of this, you still show up for work determined to do what is right. Let me ask you. Would you follow that in that scenario? Would that be your attitude? What would you do if you find out someone was looking to destroy you at all costs? Would it change your mind? Would you look to do things differently? Would you try to avoid it? Would you continue to work for that company? Would you still seek to do right by them? Would you continue to show up for work? Would it change how you interact with your coworkers and customers? when you know that they're looking for excuse to charge you with any little thing. Strange scenario, I know. But it's somewhat similar to what's going on in our passage this morning as we read Mark 11. Two weeks ago before Easter, we read that Jesus is on the road walking towards Jerusalem. He's focused on the most important task in all of human history. When God the Father interrupts His journey in the form of a blind man crying out for, for mercy. We saw that last week with Bartimaeus. In that passage, it revealed that Jesus was that promised King that they had been looking for. We saw the fickleness of the crowd who wanted to silence Bartimaeus and then wanted to encourage him. And then most importantly, we saw Jesus' mercy to this man. And we responded by committing to submit to King Jesus with cries of have mercy on us, O Son of David, while also compelling other people to come to Jesus for mercy. With that in mind, we read our passage this morning in Mark chapter 11. Follow with me if you would. Mark writes, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, the Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it to me. If anyone asks, says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away in verse 4. And they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some stood standing there, said to him, What are you doing, untying that colt? And they told him what Jesus said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many, in verse 8, spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Father, I pray that you'd open up our minds and hearts to your words this morning. These are written for our benefit. These are written for our encouragement and for the challenge. And I pray that you'd open up our hearts. Let me speak the words that build up and edify. Let us know the difference between your word and mere opinion. And Father, may your spirit cause us to respond and react in faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All the Gospels include this entry in Jerusalem. There's a purpose for its inclusion and focus in the Gospel. This is a defining moment in Jesus' ministry. Up until this time, we see that Jesus' ministry now of healing is finished. His miracles have ceased other than two short ones that are going to take place. His public teaching is completed with only a few more private instructions and encouragements for his disciples still to come. He's going to Jerusalem to die as the last sacrificial lamb. He is the final substitute that will finally cover all sins, both past, present, and future. And as you may remember from several weeks ago, we discussed that a large group of people were traveling with Jesus to Jerusalem for the Passover including Jesus and his disciples, it is estimated that approximately 2 million people were at Jerusalem that week, and they would be in there for this once-a-year event. This passage begins in a little village of Bethany, about two miles from Jerusalem, as he prepares into the city for the very last time. I want to make three observations as we look at this passage. The first one being is that Jesus arrives at Jerusalem to face his destiny. This is a place where all things are going to culminate. Jesus has spent the majority of his public ministry far from Jerusalem. He mostly ministered in Galilee and the surrounding area. And now he is finally making his way to Jerusalem. This comes after raising Lazarus from the dead, a story that most of us are familiar with. It's Passover week when the Jews celebrate Israel's deliverance from Egypt. This is the week of his crucifixion. After 30 years of mostly silence and then followed by three years of public ministry, Jesus prepares to accomplish God the Father's plan as Jesus becomes obedient to the death awaiting him. Now, what's important for us to recognize that this is not just some type of moment that just kind of came out of thin air. This is something that had been prophesied and planned for years. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Daniel chapter 9. This is 483 years after the Persian king had gave command to rebuild the city of Jerusalem as foretold in this book of Daniel chapter 9. What we see here is a culmination of something prophesied almost 500 years before. In Daniel chapter 9, a book in the Old Testament, he says in verse 24, as Daniel recognizes that the time of Israel's exile is coming near the end, he is praying, repenting of Israel's sin. God sends him an angel who gives him some information of things to happen. In Daniel chapter nine verse twenty-four, we read, Seventy weeks are decreed upon your people, speaking of the Jews, the Hebrews, and your holy city, as we know is Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal both vision and prophets, and to anoint a most holy place." Verse 25, he goes on to say, Know therefore, Daniel, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks... An anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and its sanctuary. Its end shall come with the flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Now to understand that passage is kind of difficult at times. But once we understand that the weeks he is speaking of is a weeks of seven. So each week means seven years. And so we see when he says there's 62 weeks and then seven weeks, we see that that comes up to be a total of 483 years. From the time the king said, go rebuild Jerusalem and the temple and the walls of Jerusalem till the time Jesus rides into it is exactly 483 years. It's been foretold. It's been prophesied by the angels and the prophets. We also see in Mark that Jesus had said to his disciples and foretold this three different times. First, as Peter declares that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus then tells them that he must die. After the transfiguration of Jesus again in Mark 9, Jesus tells them. And then on the way to Jerusalem, after their encounter with the rich man, Jesus says once again, I must die. Jerusalem is the center of religious life and messianic expectations. Everything in the Jewish history and culture and religion centers around Jerusalem. It is the great city of the great king. It was called the City of David, as King David had conquered the Jebusites, the people that had lived there prior. He established his capital there, and he dedicated that city to God. We find it in Psalms 48, where it says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, speaking of Jerusalem. He says it's his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion, another word for Jerusalem. In the far north, the city of our great King. Jerusalem is the center of all great prophecies. Things are going to happen, magnificent things, but also things that would just tear out our hearts. For this Jerusalem, this city of David, this chosen capital of the nation, chosen by God, intended to be a light to the Gentiles, the site of the temple, the visible focus of worship of Israel's God, the one and true God, is a place of rejection. For Jesus. But yet Jesus still enters into the city, knowing full well what's await him. Hence the scenario at the beginning of the message, would you continue to go where you knew your enemies were there to destroy you? It had ignored, speaking of Jerusalem, it had ignored and killed the prophets of God for generations And Jesus will be no exception. He arrives at Jerusalem to face his destiny. Jerusalem has been betrayed as the place that Jesus will be betrayed, mocked, beaten, and died. You have your Bibles open to Mark. Look at Mark chapter 10, verse 33 and 34. We saw this earlier. It says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will what? Rise again. But yet, knowing this, Jesus still enters Jerusalem. In Luke's gospel, we read that after raising Lazarus from the dead, a plan had been put into place in motion. You had read it earlier in the scripture reading from John. But Luke says, from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, they should let him know so that they might arrest him. Knowing this, Jesus still enters Jerusalem. The second point that we see in Mark's gospel is not only does he enter Jerusalem, but as he enters Jerusalem, Jesus accepts the crowd's exaltation as king. And this in his very self is very eye-opening as we understand that he's never done that before. But Jesus opens, recepts the crowd's exaltation. I won't call it worship because I don't really know what was in the heart and what they understood about Jesus. But they did want to make him king. This had happened prior. They had wanted to make him king after the feeding of the 5,000. They had wanted to make him king and ruler many times before. As we have mentioned several times in our study through Mark, the Jews had been looking for the promised Messiah, the king, the one who would deliver from their enemies and restore Israel to its former glory for thousands of years, hundreds of years. The Messiah, the king, had been prophesied throughout Scripture For years, there's been the story and the prophecy and the promise that there would be a king. It's first prophesied in Genesis. If you're able to turn back there quick enough, Genesis chapter 49. As Jacob is dying, he has his 12 sons. We know him as the tribes of Israel. He was blessing each and every one before he passed. And in Genesis 49, look at verse 10 through 11. He comes to his son Judah. And he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah in verse 10. He says, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until the tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Binding his foil in the vine and the donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed the garments in white and his vestures in the bloods of grapes. So as early as the book of Genesis, God had promised that the king would come through the line of Judah. And as we know, Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. It was prophesied to King David that the Messiah, the king, would come from his line. In 2 Samuel, we had read that I will raise up your offspring after you, David. He shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now we know Solomon failed at that end. And in many times, we can lose that genealogy, but God never lost it. As we come to understand from Matthew and Luke, Jesus was from the lineage of David, through both Mary and Joseph. Even Bartimaeus, the blind man, knew that Jesus was the son of David. It was prophesied that it would come through the line of David. And then lastly, it was prophesied by the angel Gabriel to Mary, the mother of Jesus. In Luke chapter 1, he says, He will be great, speaking of her son, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him to the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Nine months later, Jesus is born. So Jesus is ready to receive now the exaltation, the adoration, or the proclamation that he is king. Now what's interesting in this fact in Mark's gospel is never before had Jesus allowed Such a public demonstration. As we have read previously, he would forbid anyone to declare his true identity. It didn't matter if they were demons or disciples. Do not say what I've done or who I am. However, this time, as he rides into Jerusalem, ready for his destiny with the cross and with death, he rides into it differently. He was not pushed or coerced into riding in Jerusalem. He celebrated as king as he was in times past. It was not part of the crowd. He willingly offered himself as that king. The action of the crowd seems to be spontaneous, not something orchestrated by Jesus' disciples or other followers. But what is important is we should recognize many times, and I have been guilty of saying this many times, that the crowd who worshiped him or adored him as king, then said, crucify him days later. And that's not necessarily true. For this is not the Jerusalem crowd that is saying he is king, but the Galilean crowd that has been following him for some time. This crowd, as he's walking into, probably consisted of a large group of the Galileans who had witnessed his great miracles, who had heard his amazing teaching and experienced his ministry firsthand. They had been already favorable to Jesus and accepting of his authority. This group had been trying to make him king for some time. And I think as they're going in, they're saying, hey, we want to let Jerusalem know that this is him. This is he. This is the one that we've been looking for. The crowd cries out, Hosanna, which means save now, save now. And they recite Psalms 118, where scripture says, save us, we pray. O oh Lord, O oh Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And this is an amazing timing because this is an exclamation of praise that was used as people would travel to Jerusalem for the uh, Passover. Jesus, by accepting the adulation of the crowd, demonstrates that he is the son of David. He is the king. Publicly, the very first time he accepts it, recognizes, yes, I am that king. We see also in Mark's account that he presents himself as a sovereign king who demands obedience. He demands obedience. Not only does he show himself as king by accepting their adoration, but also by demonstrating and demanding obedience. You see, kings in those days owned all that was in their kingdom. And he could requisition anything and anybody for his own purpose and service. The prophet Samuel had warned Israel that if they chose a king, he says that he will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. In this case, Jesus demands the use of a young animal that had never been ridden or worked. Mark, including this on the part of the drama reveals Jesus' omniscience. Jesus as the Son of God. Remember, Mark has been declaring him, here is the gospel of the Son of God. And he shows his omniscience as he knows the place for his disciples to go. He knows what type of animal is there. He knows who the owner is going to be. He knows what the conversation is going to entail. And he knows what their response will be. And the acceptance as Jesus demands as a king, let me have that cult. Jesus demonstrates that he has the authority as a king to demand obedience and accept their worship as he arrives in Jerusalem and the crowds proclaim him as king. But also, what's important here as we look in this passage, and this is not so much explicit as we apply as we see what Jesus here is doing, is Jesus is not coming as a king to war, but to bring peace. For as he rides as the king, he comes to bring peace, not war. He's coming as a meek king, not a warrior king. Donkeys were usually ridden by rulers in times of peace. And Matthew explains this a little bit more clearly with the riding of the donkey. But take your Bibles and turn to Zechariah chapter 9. Another famous portion of scripture, if you take your Bible and go to Matthew, which is in the first book in the New Testament, and then start working backwards, you'll find Zechariah there. If, I'm right, if I remember right, it's the second to last book in the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 9. Jesus is coming to bring peace. And this is important because it's going to throw off the idea of what they're trying to do here. In Zechariah chapter 9, look at verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Hence why someone could say, save us, save us. He's humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle boughs shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. The original words of Zechariah, the prophets, were about God's judgment on Israel's enemies as God now brings peace to the children of Israel. The people, though, here are looking for military salvation. We have talked about that before from the Roman Empire. These people, the Jews, had suffered through Babylonian, Persian, Grecian, and now Roman captivity for hundreds of years. However, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, as he accepts the adoration, the exaltation as king, he does not come to make war with Rome, but peace with God. And this is important. Christ did not come to make war with Rome or the religious leaders, but peace with God. What they could not understand, and I believe what many people cannot understand today, is that they had a greater enemy than Rome. And that enemy was God himself. See, you hear me say the phrase many times, well, I don't have a problem with God. And I only answer, well, yeah, that's true, but God has a problem with you. He says that we're children of wrath. He calls us children of disobedience. He calls us rebellious. He calls us the vassals of God's wrath and justice. But yet, like Bartimaeus, we have to cry out, have mercy, have mercy on us. Like the crowd, we need to cry out, save us, save us, O Lord. See, they thought their enemy was Rome. They didn't recognize that the enemy was much closer at home. It was their hearts. Romans 5.10 gives us some words of encouragement of what Jesus was doing that day. Romans 5.10 says, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. You may say, well, saying that I'm an enemy of God is too harsh. Well, that's God's Word. I'm just sharing you what God says. If you don't see that, that those who do not know Christ, to those that aren't love Christ, you are enemies with God. There is no peace. And what you and I need above everything else is not just peace in our marriage, peace in our homes, peace at work, and just world peace. We need peace with God. For without it, no peace is attainable. But I love Romans 5, one, For it is therefore, since we've been justified or made right by faith, we have what? Peace with God our lord jesus christ so jesus as he enters jerusalem to face his destiny with the cross as he accepts the adoration and the proclamation that he is king comes to bring peace not war and let me share with you that's so important for you and i to understand it's why the gospels all include this triumphal entry Now for you and I, as we look, it doesn't seem very triumphant as in just a few short days, he will find himself hanging on the cross, beaten, betrayed, tortured for you and I. But in announcing the coming of the kingdom of God. And that's what they're saying. Blessed is he who comes in the kingdom of God. The people were signaling that they were ready for God to rule in righteousness. They wanted him to bring peace to the people. They wanted him to administer salvation from their enemies. They wanted him to fulfill all of God's promises and to restore Israel in God's glory. You see, the people believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the Christ, the King, the promised one to make all of this happened this was their dreams and their aspirations the words of the prophets the purpose for them continuing however this was just an earthly coronation it was man's attempt to usher in their dreams and their aspiration but we see that it fails does it not in just a few days jesus will be betrayed he will be deserted he will be tortured, rejected, and crucified all according to God's plan. Peter in his sermon that's found in Acts 4 says, For truly in this city, speaking of Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. They were all gathered against your holy one to do whatever your hand And your plan had predestined to take place. The people had one thing in mind. Here is our king. They were going to set him up, and he was going to fulfill all their dreams and aspirations. However, Jesus was born to die. God's plan cannot be thwarted. They might have thought they were setting up some type of earthly Jerusalem, Israeli king. But their earthly coronation was temporary. It lasted barely a few days. And it failed. But though the earthly coronation was temporary, and even though it was premature, we see that there was a heavenly coronation. You see, the Apostle Paul tells the church at Philippi that Jesus, who was being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Because of that, it says that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And that at the, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I mention that because you can imagine just the joy, and let's use a modern word, the buzz that was going on that day. I bet you there was an excitement for those who were participating in that event. There were probably many people who were just drawn in because of the excitement of the crowd. And they were just thinking, maybe this is the day, maybe this is the day. Going to bed may be very difficult to sleep because, oh, Jesus is here. He's going to be king. He's going to set everything right. Only to see in a few days, all of that goes away very quickly. How terrible it is to have a dream or an aspiration go like that. To see it just vaporize what the disciples and what the people didn't know is though their earthly coronation had no effect, that Jesus, as he enters Jerusalem, as he accepts their adoration, as he brings peace, even in his death, there was a heavenly coronation. Amen? He is king. And the greatest one who could put the crown on his head says, yes, at his name every knee shall bow. And every tongue will confess. For you and I, this story ought to be a source of encouragement. Yes, there are some dark days about to happen. But as he comes, we see that this is the beginning, so to speak, of the end. In the fact that Jesus now reigns. Scripture goes on to tell us, because he rules in heaven, that you and I can find joy in our suffering today. Why? By looking to Jesus, Hebrews tells us the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. and says that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The scripture encourages that day might have been temporal, that attempt may have failed, but yet it really, in God's eyes, it has succeeded. Scripture also encourages you and I, That it's not so much we should be looking for an earthly, but there will be a day when there will be a future coronation. And you and I will be part of it. There will be a day when he will once again enter Jerusalem, and we will, with all people, say Jesus is king. Take your Bibles and turn to Revelation. We looked at, I believe, at this last week or maybe the week before. But Revelation chapter 19... Scripture encourages that you and I should be looking for that future coronation when Jesus comes back, not as a king of peace, but of justice and righteousness. Look at Revelation chapter 19. Last book of the New Testament, of the Bible. It says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. Verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe. Dipped. In blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Verse 14. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God of the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of Kings. Lord of Lords this account this attempt might have failed in man's eyes but accomplished in heaven what could not be accomplished on earth And one day we will see that he comes back and there's a future coordination where all things will be brought together I'd like to end with verse 11 of this chapter as Jesus is writing to Jerusalem Jesus accepts the adoration of the crowd he comes to bring peace But then he enters into the temple for an inspection. He comes and looks around and takes a gander at what's going to happen. Jesus is ready to use his authority as king to make right what was wrong. And he's going to start at the house of God. And we will see that his use of his authority will be questioned and eventually lead to his death. But what you and I have to understand is that, and yet he did not come to judge the world In this Advent, at his first declaring, but he came to save. Jesus said, I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. For Christ has come to rule and to reign in our hearts. And that's the challenge I want to give to you. There's two responses we see in Mark. There's two responses to Jesus coming as king, as Mark records it. The first one is the response of the disciples and the owner of the cult. That's the one of obedience. What is it that you want me to do? What is it that you demand of us? And let me tell you, scriptures are full of Jesus' demands. Hence why he says you must count the cost. For following me will cost you. There's some demands. The second response is that of the crowd, is reverence and worship. Save us, we pray. Oh Lord, oh Lord, save us. Let me ask you, What's your response to him this morning? Our response is to surrender to Christ and allow Christ to reign in our hearts. To let nothing else on the throne. Our response to the King of Kings is also to obey him and to obey his word. So I would call you to that this morning. Would you say that he is king? Would you pray out, save us, O King? I would call you this morning to embrace his kingdom and the peace he freely offers. 2 Corinthians tells us, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Would you accept him as king? Not one who comes to make war, but to bring the peace. Would you invite him into your heart? Would you obey him fully? Would you follow him as he calls us to? With every head bowed and every eye closed. You know, I understand we have one message. But with many here, there may be many different ways in which the Spirit has been calling you this morning. Ways in which He's been speaking to your heart. I would pray that you would take a moment to pause. Would you take a moment to consider, to pray and respond to the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Father, I thank You for Your Word and I thank You for Mark's account here. May encourage us and strengthen us. May be a source of joy, knowing that even though, Father, that he rode into Jerusalem, and even though many days later they, he was crucified, we know that the coronation was real and true as he reigns now. And, Father, you have called many of us into his kingdom. If there's any here that do not know you as Savior, would they call upon that today? Would they choose you? Would they taste and see that you are good? Let them repent of their dead works and turn and trust in the obedience and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would give us a greater measure of faith. Call us to a greater sense of service as we serve the King with all that we have. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkininfaith at orangefilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.